Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, church. It is good to gather as a church family. Uh, If you're newer with us, we are a church that is inviting the city of Portland on a journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open them to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, We've been studying through the book of 1 Peter and our series Sojourners for five months now. We actually started this uh, the weekend of Valentine's Day, and so we are finally landing the plane this morning. For the first few hundred years of the life of the church, Jesus' followers lived in a type of exile that Peter has described for us in this letter. His audience was scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he identified them in a couple of different ways that we've seen him repeat multiple times. He identified them as God's elect, chosen people, He identified them as exiles who had been scattered abroad. They've been scattered throughout. And these early Christians, these early Christ followers, they quickly found or discovered that their newfound faith did not have a place where they fit within mainstream culture. Their life was one of suspicion. Their life was one of persecution. Their life was one, as Peter told them, of exile. But Regardless of their marginalized place in society, Peter wants to encourage them to remember that God has chosen them, that God has chosen you and set you apart, that that he was theirs and they were his. And even in the midst of their suffering, that you can still trust and obey God. Given these circumstances of these early followers, and if you know much about church history, They could have easily fallen into despair. They could have easily questioned God's plan for their life. Because the years that followed led to suffering. The years that followed led to persecution. And things worsened to the point where the apostles were martyred for their allegiance to Christ. And the church continued to come under persecution. So all the things that Peter's writing about, it continued to get worse and worse. It's like he was setting them up because at this time and when he was writing the letter, it was a little more like our time where it's, it's not as easy maybe to be a Christ follower, but they weren't being completely persecuted and, and suffering the way that they eventually did. I mean, I always say, look at the early followers of Jesus. How did it end for them? They were persecuted. They were martyred. Some of them upside down for their faith. But eventually all that changed. So you continue along church history. I don't know if we have any history buffs or history nerds in here. And in the early part of the 4th century after Christ, in 312 AD, Constantine, the Roman Emperor Constantine was baptized. And this resulted in him pronouncing Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. So eventually, being baptized into the Christian faith became synonymous with citizenship in Rome. They were kind of one in the same. Persecution was seemingly over. Peter's letter was no longer relevant. The once marginalized faith was now celebrated in the public square and by the government. It was no longer really challenging. And so this once marginal church in the broader culture had found its place, what is known as Christendom. 
where the church and the empire were united into one, where the Christian religion was considered an integral and fundamental part of the social order, that this is just how life works. And so what once was a church in exile had now become a new social order, one that the West would experience for the next 1,500 years. And so the, the result was that people now believed that there was such a thing as a Christian society and Christian nations. And they would say, look, this is what it means to be a Roman citizen. It's also to be a Christian. And, and of course you're baptized. This is just all part of it. Pastor and author Rick McKinley uh, actually lives here in Portland. He said, a Christian nation is not the same thing as the church of God. Even if their languages, values, and even practices to some extent look and sound the same. But the rise of Christianity, with the rise of Christianity as a state religion, also came many negative implications. Namely, missions were no longer central to the life of the church. What Jesus left and told his early followers to go to do, to go and to make disciples, it kind of got washed away because they didn't see the need for that any longer. And so it was no longer an integral part of the church. But instead, the mission became connected to a military conquest of the non-Roman world. And how do we, we conquer these areas? And so the union of the church and the state really confused people's identity. It really kind of blurred the lines of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and a citizen of Rome. Now, Jesus himself gave strong warnings against putting our faith and trust in the empire. We need to find our security and our power and our trust in Jesus and our allegiance to Jesus and his church. You might say, well, why are you mentioning this? Well, because we're looking at this letter that he wrote to this audience. It seemingly got worse, and all of a sudden it seemingly got better. Well, let's fast forward to now, our time and place. We all live in America, and so I watched a, a documentary, I think it was called American Gospel or American Christianity. And so fast forward to what we have found ourselves in now in American Christianity, where a similar version of Christendom came in the form of civil religion. It was assumed that there was a general Judeo-Christian ethic in our nation for the last two or three decades. Now, this isn't meant to be a political sermon at all, but to kind of frame where it is that we've been in our time and place. But for decades, you know, as far as most of my life, I can remember that was the case, that there was just kind of this general assumption of this Judeo-Christian ethic that happened in our nation. We must recognize this led to many benefits. This led to the religious freedom that you and I are experiencing this morning that we can freely worship in the city of Portland. We're not being fear persecuted. We don't think anyone's going to storm the door or anything like that. But even within these benefits, it often fell short of Christ and his ways, what I call biblical Christianity. So yes, it came with many benefits, but also came with many drawbacks that maybe we didn't recognize and didn't realize. And so the story of exile in 1 Peter, it warns us, as it, he did his original audience, of the dangers of putting our hope in anything other than Jesus and, and Jesus alone and his way. And it's only now that many within our own nation are starting to face the idolatry of placing their faith in something other than Christ. Instead of trusting in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that maybe their trust has been in something else. And so as things change, as, as things get different in our culture and society, it often is like this carpet being ripped out from underneath me, and we go, what happened? That's not how it's supposed to be. This is different. And Peter's saying, no, 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 guys, back up. Let's go back earlier in history. Remember, I told you this day was coming. 
and this day has now arrived. And so when we found ourselves once in this place of Christendom and enjoying some of those benefits, that day has come to an end. The once held assumption that to be an American is to hold Christian values is long past, which is why Peter has been such a relevant and encouraging book. Because I think if, if, if that was kind of the mentality, then we enter into this letter and we're like, wait a minute, Peter is helping remind us. He's kind of tapping us on the shoulder and saying, no, 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 you forgot something. I told you this was coming. It's normative. It's what we call normal Christianity, not radical Christianity. And so that when you do experience this, if anything, it's almost like this weird sense of encouragement to go, now we're experiencing what we were told that we would experience in the New Testament. And, and those who are following Christ and seeking to follow his ways have quickly found ourselves as a sojourning minority. Now, it's beyond this message to analyze all of those nuance. Why are we where we're at? How did things get to the place that they are? And that's not the point and purpose of this message. I will tell you, I had about four messages in my head this week, so it was really challenging for me to kind of wrap it all, all together. But I'm trying to bring five months of us studying this letter kind of like to a conclusion on where we are. But what is clear, and here's what we're going to look at, is that we have found ourselves as the people of God living in a, what I'm calling a new Babylon. And that we must stand firm in God's grace and pray for peace that's only for those in Christ. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to look through a few points, and then we'll wrap it up and go fellowship in the park. God, thank you again for this morning. You know that my mind's been all over the place, and I've got four different messages and rabbit trails I want to take, but God, we want to hear from you. We don't want to hear from Matt this morning. So God, I do pray and ask that uh, the words that I have on this manuscript, the ones that you want me to say, that I will say them. The ones that I need to skip, that I'll skip over them. And the God, that your word will not return void. We believe it's all-knowing, all-powerful, and that you speak to us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Point number one, 1 Peter 5. We live in a new Babylon. So we're actually going to skip look at verse 13 and then go back to 12. Verse 13 says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So Peter sends greetings from the church where he's preaching, which is Rome. And he uses the, the term Babylon or calls them Babylon, which when you see that in, in this, at least in the New Testament, he's pointing back and saying, this is not your home. This world, what you're experiencing is not your home. So things don't feel comfortable. They don't feel like how they should feel. That's good news because this is not your home. And so it's the same thing that's true for the church at Rome. Is the same thing that's true for the church in Turkey, which is the same for the true as church in Portland. This is not our home. We are not at home. Now, this should be good news, especially if you're in a season of suffering. And I've talked to some of you throughout this series. Because if you're not at home, but you're experiencing some type of suffering, then it informs how you're suffering here and now. To realize that this is not my forever place. That one day, if I'm in Christ, as Peter has been telling us, this too will come to an end. That the suffering is temporary. That it's here, and then it's gone. It feels like it's going to last forever. You might be in one of those seasons where you're like, I just, this suffering, I just can't take it anymore. But it will pass. And you have hope for those that are in Christ that it's one day going to pass away. And so I think part of our struggle, and I'm just as guilty, so I always feel like, man, you're, you're picking on me up there. And I'm picking on myself. Part of our struggle is we try to make 
this world our home. That's part of the struggle. That we want to make it as comfortable as possible here. That we want it to look like heaven completely here. And that we, that we, that we don't want to suffer. We'll do everything we can to avoid it. But that's not how it actually works. This new Babylon at its core, especially in our city, does not celebrate or at times even tolerate the beliefs, the values, and practices of the Christian faith. Do you guys think that's true in our city? That they don't, they don't tolerate, they don't value our Christian beliefs? Our Christian values? Our practices? Sure, we still hear the occasional lip service, mostly from a politician. We're in an election year, so they're going to ramp up and they're going to throw a token to God and a token to, to the ways of God. And they're going to, certain politicians are going to try to get the vote of those who identify themselves with Christ. But the core, these values are no longer the driving force in our larger culture where we live. America is now a post-Christian society. And Portland is one of those cities that's leading the way. And so we find ourselves in a time and place like nothing we've ever experienced. At least in, at least in my lifetime. Where you go, wow, it seems like things are like ramping up so much quicker than they used to. Where, where beliefs that we used to hold would be accepted. And now we're actually being looked at as, as intolerant ourselves and as hateful ourselves. We are divided politically and racially like never before. And we live in a time that is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith and our Christian values. The, the late Leslie Newbegin, anybody know who Leslie Newbegin is? Great missionary, 20th century to India, was shocked when he returned to the British Isle after his retirement as he was shocked by the major cultural changes that had taken place there as well as on the European continent and in North America. You see, when Newbegin began his career, he began it with the assumption, I'm leaving a Christian culture where Christianity is the norm and the established religion, and I'm going to a place where it is not that, to a mission field. But upon his return, he quickly realized his own homeland had become a mission field. Christians in the West, Newbegin observed, could no longer take a dominant Christian influence for granted. We heard, now he said, post-Christian. But then he added this. He said, but that is not a thing to be regretted. The church should always see itself as missional. The Christian arrangement lured the church into a sense of owning the culture that kept it from full faithfulness to the gospel. Now, that wasn't my full experience, but after I served in South Asia for a couple of years, I myself came back. And these fresh eyes that I've told the interns they may have when they return is, is I can see things differently and realize that we are too becoming a place where we need the church to continue to be on mission, to live on mission. We can't take it for granted. We can't rely on government or uh, certain offices to, to enforce these values. We ourselves are the ones who need to go and live out these values. The church of Christ is what we need to be doing. And so for the first time in our lives, we must answer some questions. What does it mean to be the people of God now? Not 20 years ago. I guess I'm old enough to say not 30 years ago. I can't say 40 years ago yet. But what does it mean now to be the people of God? What does faithfulness to God look like in this culture? Not the one that we remember growing up with. Not the one that we, we, we know about from 45, 50 years ago. But the one now. What should our focus be as exiles and sojourners? 
And how do we live faithfully as the people of God in this time and place? First Peter is a letter written to churches like our church about such a time as ours, which is why I chose this letter for such a time as this. We live in a post-Christian society, very much like the pre-Christian society of Peter's day. And one common temptation of the church, and we see this happening more and more, is to baptize everything in our culture and to call it good. Why do we do this? In order to make Christianity more palatable, make it a little bit easier to swallow. And typically, most of us and our friends, if we're completely honest, our family members have a list. It's actually a pretty short list for the most part. If we could change these one through five things, then generally I think it'll be acceptable and it'll be okay. It'll be more palatable to this changing culture. And so much of what passes today as Christianity is doing this very thing. Now, I'm not going to go off too far rabbit trails, but just a couple of examples if you're going like, really? How, how so? Uh, the sexual values of the culture are adopted by the church. And we see that happening more and more. A literal interpretation of Scripture is replaced by a liberal rendering of Scripture, questioning things such as, Jesus, is that really the only way to God? But my Muslim neighbor is a really loving person. I know people have, there's no way that this can be the only way. And so the mentality of our culture is, the culture calls something good, and the church needs to follow suit. Usually it's not immediately. There's a little uproar, there's a fuss, and then give it a little bit of time that the church should also call it good in order to stay relevant, to preserve our place within the broader culture because we're going to lose our footing, our foothold, if we don't also call it good. And this is exactly what our adversary, Satan, if you remember last week, if you weren't here, you can go back. Uh, Minato did a great job. This is exactly what our adversary, Satan, wants us to do. Look back at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is part of the reason I wanted to preach multiple messages, because I really wanted to preach the verses from last week that Minato preached for us. Because it talks about anxiety that a lot of us deal with in our generation. Talk about the, the, the adversary, the devil, prowling around, seeking someone to devour. But what does verse 9 instruct us to do? And this is for us both individually and, and collectively as a church. What does verse 9 instruct us to do? Resist him. Remain firm in your faith. When I think about firm, I think about my youngest son grabbing my hand on a hike that you can fall off and die, which... Wisdom, my wife would say, put him on this side, but sometimes I mistakenly put him on the outside. But that I'm holding his hand firmly. I'm not letting go. If he's falling off, I'm falling off with him. And that we remain firm in our faith, and so we are able to fight and resist Satan with that faith. Begs the question. What is faith? Faith is believing God's word. Faith is believing and trusting yourself into God's work. Not to oversimplify it, but if God says it, you believe it, and you trust it. That's faith. Because that's hard to do. 
These cultural forces, these cultural temptations have always been there. They're not new. They might be packaged differently. They've always worked to threaten the church's faithfulness to Jesus. And so this is not new to God's people. In fact, I'd say oftentimes the, the most dangerous ones are the, the ones that are real subtle. You don't notice it. You don't see it. And then one day you're like, oh, how did that happen? How did we get to this place? It just kind of slowly creeped in. But we must come to realize that it is impossible to be faithful to Jesus and assimilate to our culture simultaneously. You can't do it. Now, I'm not saying we can't contextualize. I mean, that's pretty much my master's degree is in contextualization. Like, how is it we go into culture and be as, you know, look like the culture. We don't try to stand out for any other reason. But we can't simultaneously be faithful to Jesus and assimilate fully to our culture. And so if we're going to be faithful in our exile, Jesus and his word must be our ultimate source of truth and security. Now, that's not a popular message today. It's not a popular message at all. And this is where one of my other messages that I'm just going to kind of give us a little drive-by of. But um, in Ephesians 6, 16, I don't have a slide for it. It says, take up the shield of faith. We're given this defensive weapon. So as we're suffering, as we're sojourning, as we're going through this life, we have this defensive weapon that we can hold up. It's called the shield of faith. That we're remaining firm in that faith of believing God and his word and, and standing on that. Even when we don't see it, even when we're not sure, even as we're suffering. And the other is the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. We're given an offensive weapon. When the enemy comes and attacks us and send, gives us lies and whispers those things, that we're able to pick this up firmly and say, no, I'm standing on the word of God, not your word. And so this is what it looks like when someone makes a decision and says, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm tired of following the way of the world and I'm going to live for God. But you know what happens as soon as you do that? And some of you are shaking your head because you've experienced this and you, and you know what I'm going to say. As soon as you say, I'm going to live for God, I'm tired of living for the world, I'm going to completely surrender to him, there's this little voice that's going to pop into your head. You know, you've seen it in movies, like a little devil, a little angel, but <laughs> you've got this little voice in your head, and here's how suffering will often come your way. You know, come at the whisper. Remember that night in college? Think you can fully surrender to God? Don't you remember what you did? Remember that time you cheated? I know nobody knows, but I know. You're a fake. Remember that mistake you made? Remember? 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 Your adversary will prowl around. I think some of you hear, we hear prowl and we think, man, that lion's going to come and just, ah! But it might be more subtle. It might be a little, little whisper here, a little whisper there. And so in that moment, what are you to do? As you're suffering, as you're sojourning, you're to lift up the shield of faith in the sword of the Spirit and say, Satan, I'm not going to believe what you're saying about me, but I'm going to believe what God is saying. And what God says about me is that I'm not an unworthy sinner because I am in Christ. I'm committed to Christ. And what God says is that I'm blood-bought, beloved child of his. That's what you're to do. But it's hard to do when we're no longer holding on to our sword. And so we have to believe in that moment of suffering because point number one, we live in a new Babylon. Raising point number two, stand firm in God's grace. Let's look back at verse 12. Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
So Peter wants to make sure, because I've written this whole letter for us, it's these five chapters, that my audience is able to stand firm in the grace of God and that we're able to resist the devil who seeks to destroy their faith. And so what is the grace of God? This is the promised exaltation that comes through present suffering. And so church, the way forward will require us to remain steadfast in the ways and practices of Jesus. This is what makes us distinct in our identity. This is how when someone says, well, how can you tell someone's really a Christian or not really a Christian? Because they're seeking to live and practice the ways of Jesus. None of us do it perfectly. But that we're continuing down that journey, that journey that we talk about. Philippians 4, verse 1. says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So what does this mean for us? Many of us, as we encounter the storms of life, as we encounter suffering, we try our best to escape them. Sometimes physically leaving and going somewhere where they don't exist. Here's the thing. You're never going to find that place. You may have moved to Portland thinking, this is it. I'm escaping my old way of life. I'm in this new place. Anything goes. I can be anything I want to be. This is great. Our food's amazing. Our coffee's amazing. Just all kinds of, right? And then the storm of life hits you. Probably in the first six months to a year. And then you think, maybe I should move somewhere else. <laughs> because now I'm suffering here as well. You see, the solution to your suffering is not being able to change the circumstances. But learning to stand firm in the midst of the storm. Specifically standing firm in Christ. Chasing after a new job. Chasing after a new roommate. A new spouse. A new city. That might work for three to six months, right? We have that honeymoon phase. I mean, when I was in Hawaii a couple weeks ago, I did not want to leave. I was only there for six days, so I had the honeymoon phase. But, uh, you know, the reality is, I'm sure, maybe not if there's any place, but I'm sure, like, eventually you have to work and real life would kick in. It's all the, oh, I'm going to the beach every day for three hours. Like, no, you, you would be going to work and paying bills and picking up kids from school and probably have to live inland and you, it wouldn't be that same thing. But you could, you could find that for three to six months. And some people live this way. This, they're, they're, they're a, they do this like a serial you know, life chaser. It's like every three to six months, I'm going to change location. I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to change roommates. I'm going to change this. I'm going to do these things. But it all catches up with you. And so Peter and Paul want us to have this long-term plan for our life. What's that plan? Quickly. First is we stand firm as citizens of heaven. But remember, our ultimate citizenship is there, not here. As a community of exiles on earth, we are to remain steadfast in our loyalty and obedience to Jesus. Second, we are to stand firm in our commitment to Jesus and the cross in the face of those who oppose us as the enemies of the cross. Our commitment is to Christ, and it causes hostility and suffering. And the longer we live in this culture, the longer we live in this time and place, the longer we're in a post-Christian environment, the more that hostility and suffering is going to come our way. And so in some ways, I want to say, buckle up, get ready. Because it's not going to get any easier. We must resolve to stand firm in our participation of the suffering of Christ. Third, stand firm by being united in one mind and spirit. 
We cannot stand firm, divided and alone. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. Jesus gave us each other. We might as well get used to it. We stand firm. We are linked arm in arm with a heart that's connected to a community of brothers and sisters. We get to do that locally. There's a beautiful picture in this. We get to do that globally. My brothers and sisters who we were told, I think, last year, week before, they're also experiencing suffering. Back in Ephesians 6, I've already mentioned the shield of faith and the sword of spirit, but verse 11 and verse 13 instructs us. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The days that I feel most defeated, when I take a step back, and sometimes I literally will do this, is when I realize I'm operating out of my own strength. I woke up and I put on Matt's armor, which is really, really weak. Can't really withstand a whole lot. Instead of putting on the armor of God. And so we must be reminded to take up the armor of God. And it's available to every single one of us who are in Christ. And that that is how we're able to withstand the life that we're living, this journey that we are on. Isaiah 59, 17, it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. We see the language of battle is used a lot in Scripture. The reason is we are in a real spiritual battle. And the church is not an audience, but an army. Sometimes you might feel like an audience, but you're an army. And when you think about people in an army, everyone participates, right? Sometimes, you, at least in the movies, I've never been in the army, so I don't know for sure, but at least in the movies, somebody screws up, and like sometimes their whole platoon or whatever has to go run or do push-ups or whatever, right? So we're not an audience, we're an army. We're in this together and that we are to go through this life together. We need one another. And then our final point is a prayer for peace. Peter kind of wraps it all up. Verse 14. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love. See, that's the reason we didn't go through this during the height of COVID. <laughs> peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter closes with this final prayer of peace to those who are in Christ. Even amidst your suffering, that peace can come upon you. A peace that comes from Christ and Christ alone. See, the church is to be this place of warm love and affection. Now, that hasn't always been our experience. I've talked to some of you who said, man, I walked into a church gathering or a building and it was cold. And no one said anything to me. And that's how people say it's culturally, like maybe like, oh, we live in Portland, like this, like the Portland freeze. And I'm like, not according to scripture. I don't care where you live. The church is this place of warm love and affection, what Peter calls a holy kiss. There were no romantic overtones in it. Think about Argentina, that they, at least where Andrea's from, and I loved it when I met her. Uh, because I got to get really close to her face. <laughs> but you, you, you kind of, you just touch cheeks and you, you, you make this noise. Now, one part of the country only do one cheek, so you, you sometimes you almost accidentally kiss somebody. But I love it because that's how they greet each other, not even just in the church. But I think about that, like this holy kiss, like this, this is affection. You know? Some of this is, this is hugging. I know in the last couple of years we've kind of been like, we've got air fives, all this. We're getting, we're getting a little bit closer. Some of you are comfortable with fist bumps. Some of you are comfortable with 
handshakes and you snap your fingers and do all that. Some of you like to pull into a side hug or just you know a warm embrace. The point is it's supposed to be a place of warm love and affection. So I always say we're inviting all people in this journey to learn what it means to follow Jesus. All people. All races. All gender. All socioeconomic statuses. To come and join this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. That's why one of our values is family. I've had a lot of pushback over, over the years. Why is family one of your values? Because our family, our blood in Christ unites us more than our blood of our ancestors. I firmly believe that. So you can go anywhere in the world and you'll be greeted. In fact, we're probably the least hospitable country in the world. If you're anywhere in the other place, they find out you're a Christ follower. They're probably going to offer you a place to stay and a warm meal. And they'll probably sacrifice to give you that meal. They'll spend money that they don't even have in order to take care of you. That's the body of Christ. That's this picture that we get to experience. And you think about this greetings of the holy kiss. It keeps the peace. It's hard to remain mad at someone who just hugged you. Who just embraced you. And it's genuine. It's not a fake hug. It's much easier to feel welcomed and loved and accepted when you come into a gathering. Regardless, small or big. And you feel, man, there's warmth here. These people are, are welcome and they genuinely care about it. They genuinely want me here. I think as a, as a soldier as a whole, I think I would say we're doing a pretty good job of that, but hopefully we can grow in that. And, and that all people would feel welcome when they come in. And so sojourn, we're going to go through many trials in this life. We're going to suffer for a little while. But in the midst of the suffering and the trials, there is peace. And a peace that is made possible because we are in Christ and because of his grace. We can stand we stand firm in the true grace of God as we suffer simply because we are Christians. We stand firm knowing that while the world may take everything from us, it cannot take our glorious identity or our imperishable future because we are elect exiles set apart by the Holy Spirit for the salvation accomplished by Christ and now on our way home. We stand firm knowing that even though the world may kill us, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an imperishable inheritance. We stand firm knowing that God does not waste our suffering. He intends for it to purify our faith that we may obtain our future salvation when Christ is revealed. We stand firm knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ traveled the road marked with righteous suffering and blazed the path for us to follow. We stand firm knowing that if we suffer for doing good, we will be blessed and that we will be exalted to glory as Christ was. We stand firm knowing that as we share in Christ's sufferings, we are proven to be Christians. We stand firm by humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, knowing that he will exalt us. We, you, I can stand and must stand firm in the true grace of God until we breathe no more and Christ is revealed. Church, may it be so. We pray for us and uh, transition us into a time of response this morning. Father God, we thank you for setting us apart, calling us your chosen ones. God, as we suffer in this life, we ask that we would remain steadfast. God, as we put on the armor of God and go out and live our daily lives. Lord, we know that we have a real adversary. 
or that there's an enemy that's at work and doesn't want us to proceed forward, doesn't want us to succeed, doesn't want us to get through the suffering in this life. But God, you've told us how to fight back by remaining firm, resisting the enemy, and holding on to our faith. And so God, I do ask that Sojourn Church, that the people here would stand firm in your grace, being reminded as they're on this journey, as suffering comes their way, they can continue to look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, because it's only temporary. And God, that we get to be vessels of this message and go and share this with others as well. That, that knowing that they too can suffer only temporarily, they are in you. It's in your name we pray. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.